Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Is there any historical evidence for the events recorded in the Bible? Many archaeologists and scholars of the ancient Near East answer with a resounding no. They claim that there is absolutely no archaeological evidence for many events of the Bible, including Israel's sojourn in Egypt, the exodus out of Egypt, and the conquest of cities like Jericho. Textbooks surveying the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament and books on the history of Israel make the same assertions. Then Egyptologist Dr. David Roll comes along and ignites a revolution in the academic world, arguing that there is indeed much evidence for these same biblical events. In a moment, we'll be speaking with David Roll about his recent book, Exodus, Myth or History, published by Thinking Man Media in 2015. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, and I'm L. Michael Morales, your host. David Roll is an Egyptologist, historian, and archaeologist specializing in the historical relationship between Pharaonic Egypt and the Bible. He is known principally for his internationally acclaimed television documentary series, Pharaohs and Kings, and In Search of Eden, as well as for his best-selling book, A Test of Time, published in the U.S. as Pharaohs and Kings, A Biblical Quest. David, welcome to the show. Ah, it's great to be here. So, David, tell us about yourself. How did you get interested in archaeology? It really started when I was a kid. Um, I, we discovered a few years back that I had a, an exercise book that was we discovered in the loft, actually, when we were moving home. And uh, this exercise book was full of hieroglyphs, and uh, apparently I wrote them when I was about seven years old. So I've been writing hieroglyphs in the dynasties of Egypt since that age. And I went to Egypt for the first time when I was nine. So my experience was really quite from quite a young age. And I was into Egypt right way through till my uh, sort of mid-teens. And then I got involved in the rock and roll industry and went off and did uh, music with uh, various bands and things. And eventually came back to Egyptology again in in my sort of late 30s when I went back to university to do Egyptology and ancient history at University College London. So it's been a sort of long time, but with a large holiday in the middle where I was doing music and, and engineering and uh, being a record producer. And rumor has it you may be going back into rock and roll. Is that right? I've done a couple of albums of late, yes, uh, that's <laughs> true. But I also uh, enjoy writing music and recording music for film and television. So I don't know if you know, but the, in the Patterns of Evidence movie, I actually did quite a bit of the music for that and recorded it. I didn't realize that. Let me mention here at the outset that listeners can visit the website PatternsofEvidence.com. Based on the film of the same title, Patterns of Evidence, David Roll is one of the leading figures on this film by Timothy Mahoney. This documentary takes viewers on an adventurous journey looking at the archaeological evidence for the biblical exodus. David's book on the exodus, as well as the companion set of DVDs, will delve then more deeply into the latest findings of Middle Eastern archaeology and Egyptology. And the DVD lectures also include a helpful session of questions and answers that listeners may find helpful. You can find links to these resources at our website, newbooksnetwork.com. David, let's turn now to your book, Exodus, Myth, or History. 
For many of us, the contradiction among archaeologists seems confusing. Either there are artifacts in the dirt or there are not. Yeah. Can you explain for us how there can be such opposing views? What's the real issue? It's all about time and uh, when all these things happened. Now, we follow the biblical timeline, and uh, if you're looking for an exodus in the timeline of ancient history, you're looking at 1446, 1447 BC. That's the, the date the Bible virtually gives us for the exodus event. And so if you're looking for Israelites in Egypt, it's for the couple of hundred years before that. Um, so that's the time period where, where we should find archaeology of Semitic peoples living in the eastern delta of Egypt, a large population. We should look for a conquest of Jericho, destruction of Jericho and the promised land cities about 40 years or so after this 1446 BC date. So around 1400 BC, we should be looking for a Jericho that was destroyed. The trouble is that when archaeologists excavate these sites, they don't find anything. And so uh, naturally, they come to the conclusion that the Bible stories are mythological, that they never really happened. Well, the reason why this, this situation has arisen is because basically the Egyptologists who constructed the timeline of ancient history for the rest of the ancient world have got it wrong. They made a mistake in the way they assembled the, the data. You ought to remember that um, before the birth of Christ, we calculate events working backwards in time we don't we don't have a, a bc calendar as it were that we can think of i mean today we're in 2017 well that's 2017 2017 years since the birth of christ approximately so we have a, a way of measuring from our ad chronology for the bc period we have to work backwards for the birth of christ and try and piece together the archaeological and textual evidence to come up with a date for say ramesses the second or king tutankhamun or whoever it is so we can make mistakes when we're working that out and that's what happened uh, the Egyptian chronology was overstretched. It was made too long. And as a result, it didn't synchronize with the biblical record. So, David, you're suggesting that the traditional 1450 BC date for the Exodus is correct. But the issue is that the Egyptian chronology needs to be reassessed so that it synchronizes with the biblical chronology. Is that right? There's two, there's two issues, isn't there? The first one is that we should out of hand reject the Ramesses Exodus date of 1250. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us it was 480 years from the founding of the temple in the time of Solomon back to the Exodus. And that, that can't take us back to 1250 BC because that's only a half that distance. So conventional thinking within evangelical communities and scholars is that the Exodus took place in the mid-18th dynasty, not in the time of Ramesses II. So you, you have two schools of thought there already. You have the conventionalists who think that because the city of Ramses is mentioned in the first chapter of Exodus, then we must have a Ramesses II as the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And then there's the people who look at the biblical data itself and say, well, no, that's much too late for, for the Exodus. We must look to the mid-18th dynasty for 1447 or 1450, around that period. Well, I'm saying, actually, we have to also revise Egyptian chronology. That's the third alternative, which pushes us back to the 13th dynasty for the Exodus, which is uh, quite considerably earlier. And that's where we find the archaeological evidence, and that's what's presented in the Patterns of Evidence uh, movie. They show the evidence, that pattern, that sequence of archaeological uh, data that we find there in Egypt that matches the story. It doesn't actually occur in the 18th dynasty or in the 19th dynasty of Ramesses II. Once the adjustment is made to the chronology, then you're suggesting that there's not only evidence for biblical events, but that evidence actually follows the sequence of the biblical accounts from the sojourn in Egypt, then on to the Exodus, and then onward to the conquest. Is that right? Yeah, in a remarkable fashion. 
I mean, it seems to fit amazingly well. Um, I've been accused of um, constructed chronology, which is too good to believe. Well, my argument would be, well, the truth is going to be good to believe, isn't it? It's going to be right, whatever <laughs> happens. So, uh, you know, you can't put that argument on me. Um, so, yes, it, right from the arrival of Joseph in Egypt through to Joshua's conquest of Jericho, it's all there in the archaeological record. But it's about 200 years earlier in the conventional dating scheme. But those 200 years come out of Egyptian chronology, so then it synchronizes with the biblical dates. All right, so assuming the new chronology... Tell us then about some of the evidence for Israel's stay in Egypt. Well, it began for me not by looking for biblical evidence. As an Egyptologist, as a student of Egyptology at university, when I was doing my PhD, I was actually involved in the chronology of ancient Egypt, something called the Third Intermediate Period, which is a a dark age after the New Kingdom and before the sort of so-called late period or classical era. That was my discipline. That's where I was looking. And I was finding problems in the internal evidence in Egypt. And when I'd removed those 200-odd years out of the timeline i then it was a natural thing to do to look across the border of sinai and see what was happening in israel now that i'd adjusted the egyptian timeline and so things started to look really interesting when we went back to the end of the middle kingdom the end of the 12th dynasty and the and the 13th dynasty that era we started to find that the archaeological evidence that had been excavated over the last 40 or 50 years was producing very clear evidence for a massive population of Semites living in the eastern delta of Egypt. And that's that's where the Bible puts the land of Goshen. That's where Goshen was located. And of course, Goshen was where Jacob came with the tribes, uh, with the tribe and, and settled down there. And that expanded into a very large population of, of Israelites and, and Hebrews living in the eastern delta until the time of the slavery and Moses. So it fitted very nicely, even down to the fact that we could pinpoint the moments when those people arrived in Egypt. It was actually in the reign of a king called Amenemhat III, who was one of the last kings of the 12th dynasty. And there we actually see in that time period a, a city forming from a small village, expanding outwards and outwards and outwards until eventually a couple of hundred years down the road, there was about 30,000 people living in this, this city. It was one of the largest cities in the ancient world, and the, and the vast majority of them were Semites, Semitic peoples. So that matched the story of this population of Israelites starting with a small family group and rapidly expanding to this large population, which was then suddenly enslaved and eventually left Egypt and, and arrived in the Promised Land. That's what we see in the archaeology. At the end of the 13th dynasty, we see uh, the city of Avaris, this large city. Suddenly, the Semitic population abandons the place. Their, their houses are left empty. And for a, a while, maybe five, six or seven years, the city of Avaris is, is fallow. Nobody's there. And then some more foreigners come in and reoccupy the place. But the entire population, Semitic population, seems to have disappeared at the end of the 13th dynasty. And then we look a little bit further forward and we turn our eyes towards the promised land, towards Canaan, and we see that Jericho was destroyed at that time. And it was burnt to the ground after the, the walls collapsed. And it was abandoned, left fallow again for about 600 years, which is again what the Bible story tells us, that it was cursed and, and nobody was allowed to occupy it again for several centuries. So the stories match remarkably well between archaeology and the Bible once you put it in the right time frame. This is probably a good point to inform listeners that your book, published by Thinking Man Media, is a sturdy hardback with thick color pages There are lots of pictures and reconstructions of archaeological sites, color maps, and charts. And David's writing is clear and easy to follow by the non-specialist. 
So much of what David is explaining on this podcast, you'll find beautifully illustrated in the book itself. Also, the DVD lectures were filmed by Tim Mahoney. They're high quality and include helpful PowerPoint illustrations. David, talk to us now about some of the evidence for the exodus out of Egypt. Many scholars, as you know, dismissed Moses completely as a historical figure. They claim that there was not even writing in Moses' day with which to compose the Ten Commandments. Is that the case, in your opinion? Absolutely not. Um, first of all, of course, archaeology is not going to produce evidence for every character in the Bible. You can't expect that to happen. So it's, it's fortuitous when we do fix onto somebody like a Joseph character. We do seem to have a lot of information from the archaeological evidence of him. More difficult for Moses, because this was a time at the end of the 30th dynasty in, in another semi-dark age period. It's called the Second Intermediate Period. And so we don't have a huge amount of data for that time period. But what we do have is very clear evidence of this abandonment of the city of Avaris. We also, immediately before this abandonment, we find uh, shallow pits in the ground in the city of Avaris, quite a few of them, where bodies have just been tossed into them on top of each other. There's no proper formal burials involved. And the archaeologist, Manfred Bietak, who is the main director of the excavations at the Austrian Institute excavations, he describes this as, a, as a, a plague that struck the city. And that reminded me immediately, of course, of the 10th plague and the death of the firstborn. So we have these burials there, these horrid burials, and then immediately afterwards we find the Semitic population disappears and they just close the doors of their houses and walk away. So that sounded to me very much like the Exodus. Now, we haven't specifically got a Moses person that we can pin down in the Egyptian records, although we do, interestingly, and this is really fascinating stuff, we do find that just at this period, between the end of the 12th dynasty and the end of the 13th dynasty, that era, we find a new alphabetic script appearing in Egypt and in Sinai, in the mines in Sinai, which appears to be a northwest Semitic script. And that's fascinating because what's happened here is some very clever Semite, uh, some brilliant man, has taken Egyptian hieroglyphic signs, he's t turned the sign of what it represents into a Hebrew word, and then he uses the first letter of that Hebrew word to give that sign a letter of the alphabet. And so right at this moment... Hebrews or Semitic peoples are able to write for the very first time. So to answer your question, is it possible that Moses could have written down the law or the, the laws that appear after the Ten Commandments? The answer is yes, because this is exactly when we get the first alphabet on the planet at mm. this very time. And it's invented by a Semite. Fascinating. Let's go back a moment before Moses to Israel's original stay in Egypt one of my favorite sections in your book is where you discuss the excavations at Avaris, Biblical Goshen. Tell our audience about the 12 tombs uncovered there. Yes, well, this city of Avaris begins life in the reign of the III, so the late 12th dynasty. And it appears to be at that time probably a dozen or so houses, at the heart of which is a special house. The Germans call them Mittelsaal houses. But this type of house comes from north Syria the particular design of it. Now, we know that the patriarchs came from North Syria, so it seems that when they first arrive in Egypt, the central property in this village, as it were, is typical of a North Syrian house, typical of what we find around the city of Haran in North Syria, which, of course, is where Abraham came from. So it looks like this could be the house of Jacob. Now, when the person who owned that house, who lived in that house, died, it was demolished. And on top of it, 
the, the people who lived there built this magnificent palace. It was an Egyptian-style palace. It no longer looked like something from North Syria. It was a typical Egyptian style. And it was a magnificent palace, but it wasn't for a king. It was for a high official of state, some important person. So when we look into the garden of this palace, we find a graveyard. Now, in this graveyard, there are 12 main tombs. There are some smaller tombs as well, but the principal tombs are the 12 in number. And, of course, there are 12 sons of Jacob and 12 tribes. So these could be the tombs of the eponymous ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, one of these tombs in particular is a pyramid tomb. And the remarkable thing about this is Egyptologists recognize immediately that you would not expect uh, a commoner or even a high state official at this time to be given a pyramid tomb. That was a privilege only for pharaohs, for kings. So the person who was buried in that tomb was obviously given a completely high honor for his status. Somebody who was so renowned in the country that he was given virtually a king's burial. And on the front of the, the pyramid was a chapel that, that was constructed. And inside the chapel, the archaeologists discovered a smashed statue. And this statue was around eight or nine feet tall, so it was colossal. And it was a seated statue, and only parts of it remained. Some of it had been uh, smashed up and removed. But the parts that did remain were the head and the shoulders. Those are the main two sections that were, were survived and were lying in this chapel. And when we examined the, the head, for instance, uh, it still had paintwork on it because it had been buried for so long, and we discovered that the, the hair of this statue was red, flame red, and the skin color was yellow. Now, Egyptians are not depicted with red hair and yellow skin. They're normally brown-skinned and with dark hair. So clearly this was not an Egyptian person. And then the, sh uh, the actual torso section, the, the guy was holding a throw stick in his arm like a scepter. Now that is normally um, the, 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 the symbol of an Asiatic or what the Egyptians called an Amu, what we would call a Semite. So it's telling you that this high official with a colossal statue buried in his pyramid tomb was a Semite, somebody who was in charge of the land, very important person, but he clearly was a Semitic person. He wasn't a native Egyptian. So the whole thing seems to fit the story of Joseph uh, retiring to the land of Goshen, dying there eventually. And of course, the story goes that um, when he was on his deathbed, he re asked his, his people, his brethren, to make sure that when they, if, if and when they left Egypt, that they'd be sure to take his body with them to, to bury him in the promised land. And that's exactly what Moses did two or three hundred years later when the exodus took place. He removed the coffin of Joseph from his tomb and he took it all the way to the promised land and he was reburied in Shechem in northern Israel. So that's the story of Joseph's death and then removal to Israel. Now the thing is that when the archaeologists excavated that tomb and went into the burial chamber, they didn't find the body. It was an empty tomb. Now that is remarkable. If this, if this guy, this Asiatic person who had the palace in the land of Goshen and the pyramid tomb and a colossal statue that didn't have a coffin inside the tomb, then who could it possibly be? And the clincher for me was when we examined the, the back of the statue of the, of the torso, the upper torso, we noticed that the paintwork there showed that this man was wearing a multicolored coat, a coat of many colors. So for me, the whole story fitted together. Even though we don't have a text on the statue which says that this is Joseph, everything about the statue, everything about the tomb and the palace and the missing coffin tells me it's Joseph.
Now, David, that really is too good to be true. Well, exactly. That's what everybody <laughs> says. That's good. Let's move on finally to the conquest of Jericho, which you touched on just a moment ago. Some of the very archaeologists of Jericho itself are saying that they've uncovered no evidence for the biblical account of the conquest. But given your proposed new chronology, is there evidence that matches the biblical account? Well, what I said earlier was that the Jericho was destroyed towards the end of what we call the Middle Bronze Age. That is in this time we've been talking about now, the, the time of the Sojourn and Avaris. That's all Middle Bronze Age. Now, of course, most archaeologists are looking for Jericho, a destruction of Jericho, at the time of Ramesses II, or soon after the time of Ramesses II. And as I said, Jericho was abandoned for 600 years. So when you come to the time of Ramesses II, there is no Jericho. There's no Jericho there that was destroyed. There was no city. There was nothing that Joshua could have destroyed or conquered. So that's why people like Israel Finkelstein and, uh, has a problem with it and say basically that there was no Jericho for Joshua to destroy. And therefore the Joshua story must be a myth. That's the standard argument. And they're quite right. When you look for evidence of a Jericho that was destroyed in the late Bronze Age, the time of Ramesses II, you don't find it. So, with the revised chronology, of course, we look backwards to the Middle Bronze Age, and we do find precisely what the Bible describes. We find a large city, probably a population of around 2,000 people in this city. It's incredibly well fortified. It has plaster, glassy, sloping ramparts, and there's a wall at the bottom, and there's a wall at the top of the rampart, and it's very well defended, and then suddenly the walls collapse. This is what the archaeology tells us. The wall at the top of the city mound rolls down the glassy slope and ends up at the bottom. That's what Kathleen Kenyon discovered when she excavated. She found the bricks of the upper wall at the bottom of the trench at the bottom of the city. So the walls fell down, and then the whole place was completely burnt. There was a couple of metres of ash across the whole site. Even the grain storage that we have in jars there was charred black. And the, and the, and the jars were actually full of grain, which means that the... The destruction of the city took place soon after harvest, which again is exactly what happens in the Bible. It's, it's shortly after Passover, uh, the celebration of Passover, that they actually then have the, the attack upon Jerusalem and the walls collapse miraculously. So the story is exactly the same as the Joshua uh, story. And then we have the burning of the city and the curse placed on the city that no one should build there for centuries. And that's exactly what we see. The city was not rebuilt and it laid fallow for 600 years. I found your section on Hazor, another of the cities Joshua destroyed, particularly fascinating. Tell our listeners about the findings at the excavation of Hazor. This is fairly recent because uh, Amnon Bentor has been excavating the site for the last uh, 15 to 20 years. Uh, Yadin excavated before that, but what we uh, they're uncovering now is remarkable stuff. They're actually uncovering the late Bronze Age Palace at the moment, but part of the middle Bronze Age Palace that sits underneath the late Bronze Age Palace was exposed during the excavations, a corner of it. And it seems that from that area, they found a tablet a broken tablet. It was written in cuneiform, Akkadian, so it's a Mesopotamian script, if you like, on this tablet. And it's only the fragment of a tablet, but it appears to be a letter that was either sent to or sent from Hatzor, uh, and it's a copy that's re remained in the archive, from the, middle, from the Middle Bronze Age period, from the time we're talking about, the same time as Jericho was destroyed. And the palace, the Middle Bronze Age palace at Jericho, uh, at uh, Hatzor was also destroyed this time. But uh, on this letter is the name of the recipient or the sender. And his name is King Ibni Adu, he's called on this text in cuneiform. Now, Ibni 
is the same name as biblical Jabin. And Jabin is the name of the king of Hatsor that Joshua personally stuck his sword into when he attacked Hatsor and destroyed it. And he killed Jabin of Hatsor. So the name Ibni is the same as Jabin. And there it is on a tablet from the, the destroyed Middle Bronze Age palace. That is amazing. Now, does this figure, Jabin, appear outside these two texts, the book of Joshua and this letter of Hatsor? No, uh, yes, he does, in fact. He occurs in a couple of other tablets that we know about. It may not be the same Jabin because uh, it's a dynastic name, probably, like Ramesses. There are 11 Ramesses altogether. There may have been several Jabins, but what we do notice is we don't have any evidence of a Jabin in the late Bronze Age. They only seem to be kings of the Middle Bronze Age. So there's a possibility that we have two or three tablets that may be the same character or maybe slightly different ones over a period of, say, three or four generations. So the name is common to the Middle Bronze Age, and it's not, as far as we know, common to the late Bronze Age. How much momentum is your position, the new chronology, gaining? Are there any textbooks that at least include new chronology dating as an option? Not really yet. It's the same old story, isn't it? It's um, like continental drift theory. You, you have to wait a long time before the precepts that have been established for so many decades are overturned. And most uh, scholars today are very reticent to tackle Egyptian chronology. In fact, by taking uh, this holy writ of Egyptian chronology and combining it with the biblical story, you end up with dynamite, basically, academically. You end up with a situation where you really got an explosive theory or thesis. And, of course, it's very difficult for people who've spent their entire lives explaining away the anomalies of the biblical story and the Egyptian chronology to, to suddenly wholesale adopt this new idea. So I'm not expected to win the argument overnight. In fact, I might not be still alive when it eventually gets accepted. But it, it was Professor Max Planck, who's a famous physicist, who said that when somebody brings forth a new idea – First of all, it's ridiculed, and, and everybody says it's complete nonsense. And then people then ignore it. And it's only the next generation, when they come along and the old generation has died off, that are able to take on board this new idea because they're not encumbered by the emotional baggage of the original uh, thesis when it first came out. They're, they're much more open-minded. So I'm not really expecting it to be accepted, probably for another 20 years or so at least. And are there other scholars on board with new chronology? There are some, uh, some younger scholars, certainly. They don't all agree with the exact detail that I do. We sure. call this thing new chronology. There are some of them that would uh, still argue that I'm right about the Joseph story and the sojourn and, and the exodus, although some of them will put the exodus a little bit later in the Hyksos period. Um, there are others that would argue that the revision is not as dramatic as I'm, I'm saying it should be. There are 50 to 100 years differences, but they're all of the same general thrust that a, it's not Ramesses II's period, and B, it's not the mid-18th dynasty. So they're all looking to this earlier period for the story of the Exodus and the Sojourn before that. So we're in general agreement, but we always discuss different opinions about the exact detail of it. I find this amazing, David. I have an MA in religion, a Master of Divinity degree, and a PhD in the Pentateuch. And all along the way, I never heard about any of these findings noted in your book. That's pretty sad. Well, yes, I'm, I'm sure it is. And uh, a lot of people, it's the same. I'm sure that your listeners are thinking, I've never heard this before, even those who haven't seen the Patterns of Evidence movie, although there are millions of people in America now who have seen it. So it's, it's, it's getting some, you know, it's getting along now. People are beginning to see it and beginning to understand it. And funny enough, it's the non-academics who've got the open mind who can actually see 
the, the, the reason behind it all and the effect of it, and they're very, very excited by it. And the ones that are diff- more difficult to convince, as I say, are the ones who spent their entire careers teaching the alternative thesis, which is Ramesses II or mid-18th dynasty. And, and, we, and which was, is, is the one that you've been following? Which, which one do you, have you followed over your career, the mid-18th dynasty exodus or the Ramesside one? I've always favoured the 1450 BC date, although 1250 seems to have perhaps the wider consensus. But the real challenge is that when textbooks note either date, they nevertheless go on to declare that there is actually no historical evidence for the event of the Exodus itself. That's absolutely right. I mean, and the key to it all at the end of the day is going to be Jericho, because Jericho is a place we know where it is, we know the story. And we have a destruction, but the destruction of Jericho is too early to be mid-18th dynasty or 19th dynasty. So in both of those time periods, we don't have a Jericho that's destroyed. We only have one earlier in what we call the Middle Bronze Age. So there is no late Bronze Age Jericho for Joshua to destroy. And that's where the focus is, really. And that's where people like Finkelstein and other archaeologists dismiss the biblical story because they don't have sites like Jericho with any remains that could be conceived to be Joshua's conquest. If you take typically the excavator of the site of Avaris, this is Manfred Bitak, because he wants to have an exodus if there is an exodus, because he doesn't necessarily think there is an exodus, but if he's going to put an exodus anywhere, he's going to put it in the time of Ramesses II or later than Ramesses II. So he's looking at a time period where his city of Avaris didn't exist anymore. Okay, so when he looks at the archaeology he's got of this huge population of Semites living in in the land of Goshen in the eastern delta, he can't imagine them to be Israelites. So he simply calls them Asiatics, Amu, Semites. He doesn't label them as specifically Hebrews or Israelites. He can't do that because he knows in his mind that they must be much later, hundreds of years later. So they can't be the Israelites, even though... If you look at the story of the way it's laid out in the archaeological evidence and the biblical story, they match perfectly. Psychologically, he can't bring himself to accept that these are Israelites. And in fact, he's very anxious to try and dismiss the idea that they could be Israelites. One of the main reasons I feel about that as a psychological one is that um, the excavations are in the Eastern Delta. And that area of Egypt is an area where something like digging up the Jews, as the Arabs might say, is going to be very controversial. In fact, uh, when I've done documentaries uh, about the Bible, we've not been allowed to film in Egypt if we mention in the treatment the name Moses or anything to do with the Exodus, because the Egyptians are highly sensitive to that sort of thing. So we have to go and film in Morocco, believe it or not, to create, <laughs> create the Exodus story. <laughs> the Moroccans are quite happy to have us there. The Egyptians are not. So in the Arab world, there is this thing. And because there's this whole fundamentalism thing going on in the Arab world at the moment, it's quite dangerous to have an excavation team working in the Eastern Delta amongst the population, which could be aggressive towards them and dangerous. And, and therefore, BTAC doesn't want to be labelled the man who dug up the Israelites. So, you know, he's reticent to do that. So we have to, we have to refer to them as Asiatics as opposed to Israelites. Now, David, your critics cannot label you a fundamentalist who wants to defend the veracity of the Bible. You mention in your book that you're an agnostic. How did you come to spend so much of your life's work on the historicity of the biblical account? 
Well, first of all, let's define it. Should we define agnostic? Uh, I'm not a believer in that sense, but an agnostic is somebody simply who doesn't know. Sure. Uh, in other words, somebody who's not convinced totally yet. Um, so I'm on a journey. I'm on a, a road that I've still got to travel down. So that's my position. Okay. So when I look at the biblical story, I look at it as an ancient document just like any other ancient document. And I treat it with the same credibility as any other ancient document. You test out the document against the archaeological evidence and the inscriptions on the walls of the temples. And if they match, you give it a tick and say, this document is a worthy document. It's a historical document. If it completely doesn't match anything, then you can dismiss it as fiction. So I don't, I don't treat the Bible any differently to treat any other ancient text. I certainly don't treat it badly because it's called the Bible, which a lot of scholars do a lot of scholars you know just completely dismiss the bible as fiction because it's the bible now i don't do that at all i I look at the stories in there and i try to find a way of combining them with the archaeological evidence though it doesn't drive what i do what i what i do is to get my chronology sorted out and then look to see what happens so it's not the 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 primary uh, process that i go through but I would say that the, the, the biblical stories have a narrative, a flowing narrative of a people and their relationship with their God. That's essentially what the, book, the books are about. And so I can take out the miraculous because no archaeologist or historian can find the miraculous in the ground. Right. You know, I, I cannot prove a, a plague of frogs through archaeology. I can't prove the Nile turned red through archaeology. I can't prove the death of the firstborn other than the fact we do have graves these these mass graves in avaris but most of the time we can't prove the miraculous so i have to stick with the historical and the historical is the story of a people who came into egypt settled down there prospered multiplied were enslaved left egypt and conquered the promised land and settled in the promised land and that we can find in the archaeology so that's the stuff i stick with i don't need to find or can find the sun standing still in the time of Joshua. That's not what an archaeologist can do. Your work brings archaeology back full circle. As a discipline, it really began with a close connection to the Bible. Do you think many mainstream archaeologists today are still reacting against that early association of archaeology with the Bible? It's, it's, it, within academia and within archaeology, out, let's say in the secular world as opposed to the evangelical communities, it's not cool to be a biblical archaeologist. In fact, nobody likes to call themselves a biblical archaeologist. They call themselves Levantine archaeologists. So, you know, Finkelstein does not call himself a biblical archaeologist, although he actually uses the Bible when he's doing his excavations. So, you know, he uses it, for instance, to date Strata at Megiddo and, and Samaria and things like that. But they don't like to be called biblical archaeologists. It's not cool to do that. So there has been a push against the historicity of the Bible from academia, secular academia. And that's left a, a rather hollow hole in the world of faith believers, people who who want the Bible to be true. They've been told by these academics that it's not true, that it's no better than a Harry Potter novel. And, you know, who's going to have based their faith on a Harry Potter novel? So there's, there's this hollowness there that needs to be filled. And that's what effectively my work does. Although 
as I said, it's not the raison d'etre for doing what I do. It just so happens that the conclusion I come to after revising the Egyptian chronology gives the people back the historical Bible. So I'm very pleased about that. And if it reinforces faith, if it helps people to defend the Bible against all the minimalists, the people who criticize the Bible as being a work of fiction, then that's great as far as I'm concerned. And good luck to you. I've heard there's going to be a second Patterns of Evidence film. Will you be in that one too? And are you able to give us a hint about what it will cover? Okay. Well, it's a little bit of a secret, but a bit of it's um, you know, come out into the public domain. <clears throat> What's going to be taking place in the second movie, and uh, we're, we're actually going to be filming it in, in May, mostly in Israel um, and partly in Jordan. But uh, it's going to be a continuation of the story, but this time... Uh, Tim is going to focus more on the journey of the Exodus. So upon leaving Egypt, where did the Israelites go? Where was the mountain of God? Where's Mount Sinai? Is it in Jebel El-Laws in, in Saudi Arabia or is it in the Sinai Peninsula? Now, I'm a conventionalist in this context. I think it is in the Sinai Peninsula. I do not think it's in Saudi Arabia. So there's going to be a conflict there. Now, my part in this movie will be to to actually tackle and challenge this new idea that Jebel El-Laws is Mount Sinai, and it's in the land of Midian. I would argue that the land of Midian has its heart in the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba in Saudi Arabia, but the Midianites themselves ranged over Sinai. The Egyptian border is not where it is this modern border today between Israel and Egypt, including Sinai within the Egyptian sphere. In ancient times, the Egyptian border was where roughly the Suez Canal is today, and the whole of Sinai was part of Arabia. Uh, in fact, uh, Paul refers to it as part of it. It's called Arabia Felix or, or Arabia Petria. So Sinai was part of Arabia. So the the fact that Moses wandered with his people into Sinai is in fact going into Arabia. It's not actually part of Egypt. So I would argue that um, the original site, St. Helena's Choice, uh, in the area of southern Sinai may be correct. It's going to be one of those mountains down there rather than anything in Saudi Arabia. So that's w the main theme of the film. But we will also go into more depth about the conquest narratives because there's more material that was not able to be fitted into the first movie, which was already two hours long. There's lots of more interesting material there. And while we're at it, when we're filming in, in Israel and Jordan in the coming months, we're going to be filming ahead for the third movie. Wow. So we're, we're doing stuff on the United Monarchy period as well. So this is a long-term project which is going to roll out over the next few years. And uh, as I understand it, the, the production company, Tim's production company, is already planning to turn it into a 12-part series. So that will be coming out on your TV sometime in the next couple of years. So it may well be that we have a 12-part series on the Exodus and the Wanderings and the Conquest, another 12-part series on the United Monarchy and Divided Monarchy period. So you know, look forward to lots of material coming out from the Patterns of Evidence team over the next couple of years. That's exciting. Aside from the next Patterns of Evidence film, are there any other projects you're working on? Well, I am actually now currently writing the next book that I'm doing, uh, which actually is going to cover not only the material in the next movie, but in the third movie as well. So I'm going to go on from uh, the conquest and the wanderings period right the way through to the fall of Jerusalem at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to do the whole gambit to explain to people how the rest of the chronology works out 
beyond the Exodus and Conquest. So the the time of the judges, we're going to go into the United Monarchy period where there's some amazing stuff about King Saul, which you'll find out about. Uh, we look, it looks like we actually have letters sent to Egypt by King Saul that are lying in the British Museum unnoticed for what they are. Wow. And various other amazing things like that. We've, we've found the tomb of Pharaoh's daughter who married Solomon in Jerusalem. Uh, it's all there. And that's all going to be coming out in the next couple of years. But I'm busy writing that book now, but it always takes me forever to write a book. It's going to take me about a year to write this one. And so I'm going to be completing what you've got partially in part one of the Exodus myth or history book. I'm going to continue on to complete the second half of the story so that the two books become a set dealing with the Bible and the new chronology and how it all works. Well, we will look forward to that second volume. I've already highly recommended your Exodus book to students here. That's good to hear. Excellent. David, it has been a pleasure hearing about your new book, Exodus, Myth, or History. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. All right, friends, you've been listening to David Roll discuss his recent book, Exodus, Myth, or History, along with the DVD set, The David Roll Lectures. Both are put out by Thinking Man Media, and again, you'll find a link to these resources on our website. <laughs> 